Awesome. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I am one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and we are so um, pleased that you're here with us this morning. We are in the middle of a series on the book of Nehemiah, and if you're new to what we're doing in planting this church, you may not even realize that we are a church plant of a group of churches that are actually really hubbed in the city of Lakeland who looked over to Winter Haven and said, you know what, we need to reali- we realize the, 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 the vision we had for the city of Lakeland is too small. Uh, there's a city a little bit to our east that we need to, to, to figure out how to move into. And so they have sent us here. But one of the neat things about being a part of a network of churches is, is there are five churches, three here in the city of Winter Haven, and two in the city of Lakeland who are all preaching from the same texts and the same books of the Bible uh, together week after week after week. And so we, this fall, you'll see that maybe I have a little bit of influence. I said, you know, we're planning a church. Nehemiah, this book in the Old Testament, is a church planning book. Let's preach through Nehemiah. And so we find ourselves in week three of what's going to be an eight-week series out of the book of Nehemiah in your Old Testament scriptures. If you have your Bible, you can make your way to Nehemiah chapter four. If not, when we read the, the scripture in just a few minutes, it's going to be on the screen behind me, and it's also printed for you in your worship folder. Now, we've been asking this question of ourselves as we approach this book, Nehemiah. What does it look like for us to be a city within a city? To be a people who have been gripped by God's purposes for the city, to be a community of love and reconciliation, peace and hope and purposefulness in the midst of a city that is full of violence and despair and hopelessness and meaninglessness and, um, and grief. And so far, Nehemiah, what we've seen, Nehemiah is the cupbearer, the, the, the lead character in this story, is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of Persia. He hears that his hometown, Jerusalem, is still in ruins after 140 years. The walls of the city are torn down. The city is defenseless. There's sadness and shame, and what we saw a couple of weeks ago is that the news breaks Nehemiah's heart. And Nehemiah, when he hears the news, weeps and mourns and fasts and prays for nearly four months. And so what we saw in that first week of this series is that, is that there's a need for us to have our hearts broken for our city. That that's where the motivation for the mission comes from, to look upon the sin and the sadness in our city and to not remain indifferent. To not remain unmoved, but to let it crush our hearts and turn the sadness we feel into a strategy to do something about it. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. Because he's the cupbearer to the king, providence presents him an opportunity to ask the king to send him to Jerusalem and to give him the provisions he needs to carry out the work that God is calling him to in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And Artaxerxes grants his request. Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem. He begins with the workforce that is there to rebuild the walls. And so what we said last week, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. You might be a businessman or a teacher or a grandmother or a professional athlete, but no matter what you do, you are called to see, and I am called to see, our assignments that God has given us as a subset of the greater call to be a part of bringing his purposes on the earth. If you teach then your job as a teacher is meant to serve God's greater purpose of his glory and salvation among the nations of the earth. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you have to see your parenting as the way you are participating in something greater than parenting, than household chores and potty training. And that's hard. Potty training's not fun. And that's what it means to live with a vocation, that no matter who you are, no matter what you do, 
You have to take your circumstances and bring them up into the larger story of God's kingdom coming to the earth, as we sang just a minute ago. And so Nehemiah uses the influence he has with the king in order to bring about God's purposes. He goes to Jerusalem. He rallies the Jews there, and they begin to rebuild the walls. Now, this morning, <laughs> this morning we're going to see that the one thing we can be sure of if we take up this mission that just as Nehemiah was sent to go and to make strong what was broken down, that we are being sent as a people into our city to go and to take what's weak and what's broken and to, and to, and to with his help, begin to put it back together, to, re, to reweave the fabric of community and creation that he has, that he has originally created good, then, it, then the one thing we can be sure of is that we will face terrible opposition, that we're in for a fight. And so there's a certain posture, a certain attitude, a certain frame of mind that we must adopt. And we're going to call that this morning a wartime mentality. And we'll see it as we read from Nehemiah 4. So if you would come to Nehemiah chapter 4 with me, we're going to read this passage. It's a long passage, but it's such a good narrative, we didn't want to chop it up too much. Uh, so come with me to Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read and ask this question, what does it mean for us to have a wartime mentality in the mission that he's called us to? Nehemiah 4, beginning in verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what, will these feeble, what, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn, one, and burn ones at that? And Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Verse 6, So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Verse 13, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open place, and I, places I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials, and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. 
So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem so that they may be, may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard followed me. None of them took off. None of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is God's word. A wartime mentality. Three things this morning. Why we why we need it? What is it? And what sustains it? A wartime mentality. Why we need it? What is it? What do we mean by that? And what sustains it? So first, let's look and ask this question. Why do we need a wartime mentality? Let me ask just a simple question. Uh, none of the kids are in here, but let me this question. Why does every great story have a villain? Why does every great story you'll read have a villain? The three little pigs, they contend with who? The big bad wolf. The children in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia fight against the white witch. Frodo and the fellowship in the Lord of the Rings go out to destroy Sauron and the forces of evil. Luke Skywalker fights Darth Vader. Every great story has a villain. But why? Because we have one. We have, we have, we have, there's a villain that is a part of our story. There's something, there's a being that is set against us. We are opposed. And if you don't believe that, then make a commitment to doing good and watch what gets unleashed on your life. Commit to waking up 15 minutes earlier this week to take community Bible reading and to make it a part of your life and see if you have kids how many times they end up up in the middle of the night. Commit to doing anything good. And just watch what comes against you. C.S. Lewis said, we are all born into a world at war. And he wrote in Mere Christianity, I love this quote, he says, enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. What the scriptures would teach us is that Spiritual forces of darkness are very real. And I realize that I may sound like a complete crazy person this morning. But I want to say we believe in Satan. We believe there's a story that, that the Bible teaches us is the story of what happened before any of this that we see around us was even created. A story that happened before the dawn of time. And that was that when God had created these beings we call angels, that one of those that was created was not content with being created. He wanted to be the creator. He was not content with serving. He wanted to occupy the throne. And so he rose up in opposition against the Most High God and not being the Most High God was defeated very soundly and cast to the earth. But because of his defeat, he now has come to make war against us, the ones that God loves. And as Jonathan prayed a few minutes ago, the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible presents him as a great red dragon who is chasing the church, seeking to devour us. We believe evil is real. We believe it's not just some weird spiritual force out there. It is a it is a it is a being. It is personal. It is intentional. And that we are born into enemy occupied territory and that 
being Satan, his agenda is very clear. It is to steal and to kill and to destroy. He wants to destroy families. He wants to destroy cities. He wants to devour our children. He wants to devour our lives and our livelihood. We are opposed. And what happens is, is what again, what the scripture would teach us is, is these cosmic spiritual forces of evil are what are behind a lot of the political and social and even religious evils that we are surrounded in in our culture, whether it be radical Islam or corrupt governments in Africa or whatever those particular expressions of evil might be, that those are just that they are the expression or they are the working of these invisible spiritual forces of evil. And what we see here is two characters are introduced at the beginning of this passage, Sambalot and Tobiah. Now, our, our friend Lyle Caswell at Christ Community Church in Lakeland has affectionately referred to these guys as Sandy and Toby. Um, but I think we'll stick with Sambalot and Tobiah. Uh, but Sandy and Toby. Sambalot was the governor of Samaria. Uh, Tobiah was some sort of political dignitary, but whatever you make of these guys and their titles, it's a little confusing, and the, the commentators are, and the people that write about this stuff are very, are very divided. Whatever you may make of them, they were something of the equivalent of tribal leaders. Now, when they hear that Nehemiah has come to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, they begin to exert their political force to stop him. And what you read as we read through this passage is, is the opposition begins to escalate. They begin by slandering and they try to demoralize the workers in Nehemiah. But by the time you come to verses seven and eight, look at verses seven and eight with me. And we see in verses seven and eight that when they heard Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites. So there's an alliance that is formed. Sambalot and Tobiah were located to the north of Jerusalem. The Arabs, let me get this right, were to the south of Jerusalem. The Ammonites were located to the east of Jerusalem and the Ashdodites to the west. And so the Jews in Jerusalem are literally outnumbered and surrounded on every side. And that's what Nehemiah, Nehemiah is trying to communicate in those verses. They were they were. They were completely overwhelmed with the opposition that was coming against them. And the intent of this corrupt, evil coalition of, of governmental forces and, and, and political identities is escalated as well. Their intent goes from taunts to an intent, you know, you read later in the passage, to fight and cause confusion all the way. We didn't read it in verse 11. They say we're going to come and we're going to kill them all and we're going to stop the work. And Nehemiah and the people working with him were weak. They were vulnerable to attack. They were outnumbered. They were outmatched. And that's always true of the people of God. Next to the political powers and empires of the world, we are small and insignificant, vulnerable and weak. And what the Bible would teach us is that that, I, that reality should create in every one of us the expectation that it is going to be hard. I want to say to you, I have four kids. Parenting is hard. Being a good friend is hard. Attacking the evil in a city is hard. Teaching ninth graders at Winter Haven High School is hard. If you don't believe it, come up here. Doing good is hard because of the opposition that's set against us. And so the expectation should be, just that it's going to be hard. And so Peter writes to the early Christians and he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you as if something strange were happening to you. 
And in the same letter, Peter says, because that's the very thing we've been called to, to suffer for Jesus' sake, because he suffered for us and has left an example that we are to follow in his steps. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is, is I love that, it, that the Apostle Paul really did have some, some insecurity issues, I think. And I, when I get to heaven, I'll ask him about it because I struggle with the same thing. But in, but in 2 Corinthians, Paul is making a defense of his apostleship because there are some who are saying, you know, you're not really an apostle. And so Paul just launches into this, so you say, I'll show you, mentality. But here's what he doesn't do. He goes into a defense of his apostleship, but he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't do, and he doesn't, he doesn't go to the things that I would go to the things. He, he doesn't count Nicola noses. He doesn't talk about how many people had made decisions for Jesus in his ministry, how big his church is. He talks about how hard it's been, and he says, I've been beaten, I've been imprisoned, I've been stoned, I've been talked bad about, I've gone hungry, I've been shipwrecked, I've slept out in caves. You see, that's his case. Isn't that amazing? Here is my justification for the validity of my ministry. They've beat me. And I just want to encourage you, if you're going to love, it is going to be hard. People are not going to like you. If you're really going to be in it for the good of people, I have a friend who this week is trying to love and minister to one of her friends who is making some poor choices and is deliberately moving towards, a, towards sinful positions of behavior. And she has challenged this person and said, what you're doing is not right. It's not good. It's going to cause sadness and despair. Please reconsider. And she got a nasty email that just said, your job is to love and support her. And I had to email her and say, I don't think, I don't think it's loving to support somebody who's drinking rat poison. But if we're going to move into people's lives, if we're going to challenge, if we're going to call people to repentance, if we're going to love and say hard things and sacrifice ourselves, it, we are better be in for the reality that it is going to be hard. And so if you're not a Christian, if you're here, you're wondering what this Christianity thing is about, let me warn you at the very beginning, following Jesus is hard. People will hate you. They will say mean things about you. You will be misunderstood and mistreated. And, and the scripture will call us to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. But if you are a Christian and if you've been in the church for a long time, then let me just pose a test to you. Could it be that one of the reasons that our lives most times are so safe and comfortable and free of danger and criticism is because we're so unthreatening to evil. The lifestyle that we've become accustomed to in our culture has made many of us cowardly and cautious, and that's a great opportunity for us to begin to repent. It's here's what is so amazing is what the scripture would teach us is the very opposite of what you would think, and that is that the hardship and the persecution and the suffering that come are not something we should run away from. They're things that we should embrace because they are the very means that God has chosen to accomplish the mission in us and through us. Now think about that. It, suffering and hardship and pain is the means that God has chosen to accomplish the mission in you. The Bible is clear that the, it is the times of incredible pain and suffering, and heartache, and opposition that we experience the most growth in our relationship with God. Those of you who have been walking with him longer than me, can I get an amen on that? Try and wrap your head around Hebrews 5.8, where we're told that Jesus, Jesus, the perfect Son of God, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And so James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Count up pure joy when you meet trials because they pers produce perseverance, which in turn produces spiritual maturity. 
And I can just tell you, I know that to be true in my own life. But not just in us. Suffering and hardship and persecution is also the chosen means that God has He's chosen those means to accomplish the mission through us. And I think the perfect example of this we read, and I hope you're reading community Bible reading. I don't have a worship folder with me if you see the insert. This is a this is a schedule where we read the Bible together, and this week we're reading in Acts. And in Acts chapter one, um, the Holy or Jesus speaks to the church and he says, You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we got all the way to chapter eight and all the way in chapter eight, all this time has passed. And guess where the the Christians still are? They've not gotten to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They're huddled in Jerusalem where it's nice and safe and warm and comfortable and they've not obeyed the commands of God. And so guess what happens? Persecution comes. And the church is scattered. And it's beautiful in Acts chapter 8. You can go look at it later. But in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 it says. A persecution arose against the church. And the church was scattered. And guess where they were scattered? Judea. Samaria. And then it says the greatest thing. And as they went they preached the gospel. Do you see that? God, God, God came in. And through hardship, he sent the church to do the mission he gave them originally. It reminds me of a story I was told about the church in China. And some American missionaries went and met with some leaders of the church in China. And they said, the Americans said, how can we pray for you? And the Chinese Christians said, well, three things. Pray, number one, pray that the government would stop persecuting us. Number two, pray that they would pass laws that would not make it illegal for us to have meeting places and buildings. And three, pray that our pastors would be able to go to seminary and be professionally trained. And the American Christians looked at them and said, we will not pray those things for you. Because those are the very things that have caused the explosion of the gospel that China's experienced. It's that hardship that God has worked through that has caused great success in the mission. And so we should expect opposition and not run away from it, not be put off the mission because of it, but just realize it's part of the package and we have to embrace it as the means that God has ordained to accomplish his mission in and through us. But you see, if that's why we need, so we need a wartime mentality, but we have to answer the second question that we pose, and that is, well, then what is it? What do we mean by this wartime mentality? And what I have to say to you is that the problem we face as a people is that we are being discipled in our culture in the exact opposite direction. We, we're being told over and over again, except by the, the political leaders in our, in our country, that it's really peacetime, not wartime. And so I remember the first time I, I, was, a, I was my first year at, at Reformed Theological Seminary and we were having a missions conference and, I, and I, I just happened to be there that day and walked into the chapel and there's this really dorky, looking guy with glasses and looked like he walked right out of 1963. And I thought, who in the world is that guy? And he introduced himself as John Piper. Now, if, you're, if you've been around the church, you know who that is. He's a pastor in Minneapolis. And I thought, That's, who's, who's John Piper? I didn't know him back then. And he started talking. And 45 minutes later, my life was different. And he said, I remember, never, never forget, he said, if you read the scripture, the movement of our lives, the scripture calls us to, is away from comfort and toward need. But if you look at the culture we live in, 
the movement that our culture is discipling us in is the exact opposite. Our culture is discipling us and moving as far away from need as we possibly can toward comfort and ease. And we seek ease and comfort and security at all costs because it's what we call the responsible thing to do. Or here's another way that this works out in our culture. We assume that we're doing something wrong. If it's hard, it must be wrong. It must not be God's will. Ashley and I, in our parenting and in our marriage and in just life, we're constantly coming back to this. If it's hard, it must be, I must be doing the wrong thing. It must not be God's will because we've bought into this mentality that everything's supposed to be easy and comfortable and safe and predictable because that's what it means for God's blessing to be on, be on our lives. But I really believe that this passage blows that out of the way. That it really is calling us to something completely different. And we have, to, we have to come to terms with the expectations that are just wrong in the way that we have perceived what it means to move forward in the mission. I remember, and this is not a cut on James Dobson, I remember uh, uh, hearing an interview James Dobson had with Heather Mercer. He, Heather Mercer was one of the, the girls that was in Afghanistan when we first went into Afghanistan. And James Dobson was interviewing her. It was great. He said, so, you know, you, you really can't preach the gospel in Afghanistan, can you? And Heather Mercer says, no, you can, but they'll kill you. And, and Dobson said, well, that's what I mean. You can't, really, you can't really preach the gospel there. She said, no, you can. But they might kill you. It was great to see a little 23-year-old woman tangle with the big man. Uh, John Piper, who I've mentioned already, he has a quote, and I don't have it for you, so just, just listen. It blows my mind. He says, most people show by their casual approach to spiritual things that we believe we're in peacetime, not wartime. In wartime, we are alert. We're armed. We're vigilant. In wartime, we spend money differently. There's austerity. We cut back. Very few pe people think that we are in a war that is greater than World War II or any ima unimaginable nuclear war. Few reckon that Satan is a much worse enemy than any earthly foe or realize that the conflict is not restricted to any one global theater, but is in every town and city in the world. Who considers that the casualties of this war did not merely lose an arm or an eye or an earthly life, but lose everything, even their own soul, and enter a hell of everlasting torment? You see, our ease has turned into inertia, and our abundance has created apathy, and we live as if it's peacetime, not wartime. And so the picture here in this passage is instructive. It calls us to something completely different from what has become, quote-unquote, normal Christianity. Look at verse 17 and verses 18 with me. And I love, I love uh, what, how Nehemiah describes this. He says there, each one of us labored on the work with one hand and it held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. And then drop down to verse 23. And, and there in verse 23, he says, So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Now, don't you love that picture? Isn't that a great picture? They worked with one hand and in the other hand they held a sword. Right? So, moms, you change diapers with one hand, and the other hand you hold a sword. I mean, whatever the work is that he's called you to, you work at it with one hand with all of your might, but you carry a sword. What's Nehemiah describing? He's saying that the potential danger was so real and so great, we didn't even relax long enough to take a shower and change our clothes. He says we stayed alert. We were ready. We were armed for the battle so that at a moment's notice we could take up the fight. That Not one second passed. 
that we didn't realize that an enemy was there and that he was real and that, and that he was like a prowling lion waiting to devour us. We stayed, on, we stayed on alert. We stayed ready. We stayed tensed. We stayed prepared. That's what it's going to take. That kind of diligence, that kind of seriousness, that kind of urgency in the approach that we take to spiritual things as it relates to the mission that God has called us to in our families and in our city. That's what we mean by a wartime mentality. But look again at how Nehemiah specifically, I want to just see, I want you to see how they respond to the opposition here. There's something of real significance, I think, in verses 7 and 8. And in verses 7 and 8, we see that here this alliance is formed. They're surrounded on all sides. And they plotted together, he says, to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. And then look at how abrupt verse verse, verse, verse 9 is. And so he says, And so we prayed to our our God, And we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Nehemiah says we prayed and we set a guard. Now, isn't that interesting? Because most times our typical response would be just one of those two things. We'd either, it's either, you know, we pray and then we just say, well, it's in the Lord's hands. And those are the people that don't take their kids to the doctor when they're sick. You know, nothing against that, but it's just. Well, we've prayed, now it's in God's hands, there's nothing more to do. Or we just jump right in and we try to overcome in our own strength. But Nehemiah says we prayed. We put our hope in God, we cried out to him to save us, and then we got to work. And to live with a wartime mentality really involves both of these things. So let's take a minute just to look at both of them really quickly. First, prayer. Now going back to the beginning of this passage, there's, do you see verse 3? There's an abrupt, there's just an abrupt transition in verse 3. And, and what you're reading is Nehemiah's personal journals. And so he talks about Tobiah. And the Ammonite, the Ammonite who's saying, yes, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stones. And then in verse 4, there's no introduction. Nehemiah just launches into prayer. Hear, O God, for we are despised. It's a pattern that's emerging in this book already, that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. His reflex is prayer. And this is really good prayer. He says, Lord, you're great, and I'm really in trouble. I mean, that's prayer. I mean, in real prayer, we don't say, you know, God, things are going good. Thanks for all you've done to bless me. I just need a little favor. Real gut-wrenching prayer sounds like this. God, my heart is breaking. My world is undone. I'm split in half. I'm terrified and vulnerable. Help. And prayer really malfunctions when it doesn't come from a sense of the overwhelming circumstances that I'm up against and my weakness and need in those circumstances. And there's a mission that we've been called to, and there's an enemy more powerful than we can possibly imagine set against us. And the realization of those two things is what ignites true, radical praying. And so I come back to John Piper one more time, and this one's going to be on the screen for you, and this just helps me so much. John Piper writes, Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the bed. The first time I read those sentences, I just melted because I've so seldom experienced prayer like that. I pray wimpy prayers. Oh, I do. Especially with my kids at night before I put them to bed. Tired, I just want them to go to sleep. God bless them. Yada, yada, yada. Help them get good sleep. Amen. The parents are laughing because, you know, it's the end of the day. Just, I hope they have no scary dreams. And, you know, in the, Father, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you know, go to bed. And I've just caught 
at how wimpy my prayers are. And I would say, men, we've got to lead our homes in prayer and we've got to let our children hear us call evil real and say God's good. Uh, next Sunday night, we meet to pray. Uh, it's, in, it's in the announcement portion. Come and join us as we pray this kind of thing for our city. But you see, not only prayer, Nehemiah doesn't, he doesn't just pray. He doesn't lead the people just to pray, but they work hard too. In verse 6, I just, I love, this is so great. And so he prays in verse 4. There's all of this opposition coming. I mean, it's overwhelming. I feel it all the time. And yet in verse 6, there's just the simplicity. Nehemiah just says, so we built the wall. Don't you love that? And he says, and all the wall was joined together, verse 6, to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. You see, prayer doesn't leave us without work to do. Faith's not opposed to working. It's not opposed to wisdom. You can't say, I want a great marriage, and then not work hard and expect positive results. Just like I can't say, I want to lose weight, and then, not, and then keep eating whatever I want to whenever I want to and not work out. You can't say, I want my kids to grow up and love Jesus and then not do the things God's told you that will cultivate that love in their hearts. There's hard work to do. And Nehemiah says that the people had a mind to work. They were willing to risk, to sacrifice, to not give in to their fear and their worry. And see, that's what we need. And so the last question we have to come to is how then how do you get a mind to work in the face of incredible opposition? If there's something set against us, and if the wartime mentality is what we need, then what sustains it? And I want you to come to verse 14 with me. And you'll see in verse 14 that Nehemiah says, do not be afraid of them. And then what does he say? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And then in verse 20, he says, our God will fight for us. Now, Nehemiah says, don't forget God. See, that's the temptation to get a mind full of the Sanballats and Tobias of our life. To make so much of our circumstances, to assign so much significance to whatever opposition we're up against that we forget the Lord who is great and awesome. See, a mind to work comes from having the courage to face opposition. And that courage comes from believing that God is greater than anything we could ever come up against. And that he's for us, that we are his people and he will fight for us. And so the issue that we have to contend with and to confront is our unbelief. We forget God in those defining moments of our life day after day. Our circumstances overwhelm us. Our fear, our hurt. Our pain, our turmoil become more defining in God than God. And that's what we mean by unbelief. That we don't really believe God's greater than what we're up against. Or, and here's the, here's, here's the more subtle, or we don't really believe he really loves us and will fight for us. We may believe it on one, on one level, but our fear and our discouragement betray that on a whole other level we've forgotten him. And so Nehemiah says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight because he will fight for you. And you see, here's how... Here's, Here's what happens. Here's what happens as we come to a close. The enemy will play on your unbelief. I just want to warn you, the enemy that you face, just like the enemy that Nehemiah faced, is going to play on your unbelief and he will take advantage of it. You see, what strategy does Sambalot and Tobiah use at the very beginning of our passage? You see verses 2 and 3? It's a, it's a smear campaign. Look what they say. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? What are they building? If a fox jumped on that thing, it would topple over. They're hateful. <laughs> They're hateful. That's my word. That's the word my friend Jamie uses. They're just hateful. You're weak. You can't do it. 
It's too big a job for someone like you. They taunt, they mock, they accuse. It's an attack against their very sense of identity. And that's the strategy that your enemy is going to use as well. His name is Satan, and it means the accuser. And his strategy is no different. He accuses. You're weak. You're disqualified. You're too young. You're too old. Your sin is too great. God couldn't possibly love someone like you. And all of those accusations bolster our unbelief. It's like throwing gasoline on a raging fire. And so what I want to say this morning to you is only the gospel of Jesus can make us into the kind of people who can stare opposition and hardship in the face and not give in to fear and discouragement. And there's a scripture that's going to be up on the screen for us to read together. In Colossians 2, 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul writes this. And I'm just going to read it with you. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Look at verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, in Jesus, God indeed has fought for us. What did he do? What did Jesus do? What does it say there? It says that Jesus disarmed the spiritual forces of evil that are aligned against us. I love this. It says that he's made a public spectacle of them. He shamed them. And the imagery is what the Romans would do in that day with their enemies, that they would drag them through the streets behind their chariots as defeated foes. Jesus has taken all of the spiritual forces that are aligned against you. He has disarmed them and he has dragged them through the heavenlies to expose them as being powerless before you. That's what he's done. But how did he do it? And you'll see there, Paul says, there, there was a record of debt that stood against us. You see, we are weak. We are sinful. We are guilty. Everything the enemy might accuse us of, it's all true. And because of it, we deserve death and hell. We have no claim on God's protection or his love or his favor, only his displeasure, his wrath and his condemnation. And yet in excuse me, in Jesus, this record of debt has been set aside. He has put it away by nailing it to the cross, Paul says. Jesus hung on the cross, bearing in his body our record of debt. He hung there in our place and he was condemned because of our sin, not his. He stood condemned because of our rebellion and guilt and he faced the wrath of God in our place. What the Bible teaches is that God poured out his wrath upon Jesus because it was what his justice demanded. However, because Jesus received his wrath, we now live under his love and protection. That's the gospel. And if your faith is in Jesus, then he has overcome every accusation against you. Paul says every sin you've ever committed, no matter how gross, has been forgiven. And because God's displeasure and wrath was extinguished upon Jesus, there is nothing left for you but love and blessing and faith. Remember the Lord who is great and mighty. He will fight for you. Of course he will. Of course he will. You're his beloved child. There's no accusation left. The charges have been dropped. There is no condemnation. Jesus has suffered for us. And if your faith is in Jesus, then God is for you. And if God is for you, who could be against you? Now, do you see how believing that, do you see how really believing that deep in our bones changes everything? Do you see how it helps? How does it help with prayer? Who wouldn't want to pray to that God? I mean, the way's been clear. Come boldly. You're my child. I'm your dad. And that doesn't cut against working hard. Who doesn't 
He's done that for me. Man, let's get busy. Let's get going. But the issue is, can we embrace the gospel of Jesus, not leaving this place saying, you know, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to work hard and hopefully he will love me and he'll come to my aid. No, 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 no. Can you and I stop? Can we put our faith in Jesus and can we rest in the reality that in Jesus God has fought for us and in Jesus he has triumphed every accusation? And so now it's left to us to arise and put our battle gear on and to go and fight for the sake of his glory and his name in our city. And so let's pray uh, that we would do that. Heavenly Father, come. Come to us now. And may we hear in the song we're going to sing and, and, and how we celebrate together now the call to go in faith to put our armor on and to engage in the battle because the victory has been secured in Jesus. And if our faith is in him, there is nothing left for us but blessing and peace. But Father, we, uh, we so struggle to believe that because the enemy is real and his accusations sting. And we live with them lodged in our heart. And so I pray that we would be, that you would, you would change us into people who can meditate more and more and more upon the reality of the gospel. And as we do so, that it would produce in us a, a radical praying and a radical working hard. That you might be glorified in our city through us who are weak and frail. God, come and fight for us. If your faith is in Jesus, then no matter what opposition may face you when you leave this place or what opposition you may be going through sitting in these seats, he is the everlasting God, great and awesome. And because the wrath of God the Father fell upon Jesus, his love and his blessing and his favor now go with you. He will fight for you. And the promise that he will is contained in the benediction. So receive it this morning as I speak it over, over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.